So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people with the goal well, of making energy both cheaper but also completely clean. And so, with the right innovation. Uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than dirty energy. Solar has gained 17 times the rate of our economy. There are 2.6 million jobs in our country in clean energy. The world's biggest energy agency believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year, but there are still questions about price. Brent crude is down by more. We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. Hello and welcome to Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Jeff McMahon. We've got an exclusive interview for you today with former Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz. Moniz was in Chicago for the commemoration of the first self-sustaining man-made nuclear reaction, which took place on campus 75 years ago. While Moniz was here, he sat down with EPIC director Michael Greenstone. Their conversation is wide-ranging, from little-known details of Moniz's life to new insights on nuclear security and climate change. Moniz talks about the potential impact of the Trump administration's budget priorities on energy research programs. He describes several projects that he says we need to pursue right away with more funding and more emphasis if we're to meet the challenge of global climate change. Let's listen to their conversation. All right, welcome to Chicago, Ernie Moniz. Thank you, Michael. We're thrilled to have you here. Pleasure to see you again in alien territory. Yes, you should make this your home. We're always a space for you here. Uh, so this is a podcast that the Energy Policy Institute of Chicago has, and we're thrilled to have you be part of it. And I thought I would just ask by Maybe a little personal history, not everyone knows, and I don't know. You're slaving away, you're getting tenure at MIT, you're an academic. What happened? <laughs> how did I fall from grace? Yes, how did you uh, fall from grace? Well, it was gradual. Uh, so, um, uh, and it comes like in, in, in like decadal chunks, mm -hmm. roughly speaking. So, uh, like the energy system. Oh, that's right. So, yeah. first there was uh, 10 years of being a happy academic physicist uh, yeah. doing uh, research. Uh, then came another uh, period uh, of uh, directing the Bates Laboratory, which yeah. is a Department of Energy, uh, was a Department of Energy user facility that MIT operates. That's relevant to the story because once you start getting into that um, uh, environment, uh, you naturally start working with DC, uh, you know, DOE, Congress, OMB. You were directly uh, reporting to? No, no, no. But, uh, but, but uh, fundamentally, yes. the, the Department of Energy Office of Nuclear Science yeah. uh, uh, fund, funded the laboratory. Yeah. And so you, so you get start getting familiar with that environment. Yeah. Uh, I then became department head in physics, but yeah. that. And, but now, just did you like that, or was it, did it seem alien? You know, because at that point you part? were interacting with people outside of academia. At that point, you're used to writing your papers, really dealing sure, with the well, but, but, but I, I was 100 months as director yeah, of the laboratory, uh, and that included doing a major construction project yeah. uh, and, and the like. Uh, so it was already quite a different world. Yeah. I did maintain my, my research, but, uh, but it was a different world. Uh, 
<coughs> in fact, in fact uh, our mutual colleague, uh, John Deutsch, was responsible for this change of direction yes. since he was dean of science. Yeah. And, uh, and it didn't stop him uh, uh, more than about five or 10 seconds when I informed him uh, that it was unusual to have a theoretical physicist become yeah. the director of a substantial uh, laboratory. But whatever the case, that started this discussion with, with DC, et, et cetera. And uh, long story short, um, completely serendipitously, uh, I became associate director of the Office of Science and Technology Policy in the White House uh, in 1995. Briefly, returned to MIT as I had promised at the beginning of 1997. Uh, but I wasn't back long uh, when I got the call to be undersecretary, and that's when things really changed, yeah. basically. And I became undersecretary for the second Clinton term. And um, uh, then Did when you I move to Washington? Or Naomi was <coughs> Naomi already... was was there. Yeah, my yeah. Uh, Naomi, my wife, was uh, a faculty member at Georgetown. Yeah. So this is one of the few cases in which taking a government appointed appointment actually brought us together, yes. as opposed to uh, adding to commuting time. Uh, but, uh, but then when I went back to MIT following those two stints in government, then I decided it was time for a complete change. Mm. And so fundamentally, although I taught physics, uh, I stopped my research in physics mm. and instead went in the energy direction, uh, originally energy policy, the future of studies that you yeah. know well, uh, then started uh, the M MIT Energy Initiative yeah. uh, in 2006. Uh, and um, remained doing that until I went back as secretary. I see. So you the, the second stint in, in, in DOE, that, that was a life-altering moment. And uh, yeah, you, what uh, parts of academia do you miss? Students. Students. Yeah, students. Yeah. Uh, faculty meetings, not so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the students. We have some uh, of those here you could right, yeah. attend for me. Yeah. Now, now I am back. I'm now in my post-secretarial uh, career. I'm emeritus at, at MIT. Mm -hmm. I do one project there. Uh, so I'm part-time, uh, but I spend a lot of my time in Washington with two other enterprises that I'm now, I'm now directing. Yeah, do you want to tell us about them? Sure. Uh, so uh, basically my time is split uh, uh, roughly, let's say roughly equally, whatever that means on average, um, uh, between clean energy and innovation and climate mm -hmm. issues, uh, and the other half uh, is on nuclear security issues, nuclear weapons, nuclear proliferation, uh, and the like. Uh, the latter uh, I exercise uh, now as uh, co-chairman of the board and CEO of an organization called the Nuclear Threat Initiative that has been, uh, I think, a very effective organization since its founding in early 2001. Mm. Uh, Sam Nunn has been the CEO mm. until June of this year. Mm. I took over the executive role, uh, insisting that Sam, however, remain as co-chair of the board yeah. so that we work together on these issues which regrettably, uh, frankly, have um, um, been heightened in the public, uh, public discussion uh, yeah. because of uh, Iran, North Korea, uh, ongoing tensions with Russia, uh, et cetera. Uh, the other half, uh, uh, the climate and, and, and energy, <clears throat> partly that's my MIT. So before we get to that, I want to, are you going to say something that's going to make us all feel better? Well, about, let's, come, let's come back to that. About I mean, the nuclear... Well, let, uh, let, me, let me finish okay, okay. The, the, yeah. on this, just to say that yeah. the, uh, I have my part-time MIT, but I also uh, founded with two colleagues uh, uh, who, who you know, uh, Melanie Kenderdine and Joe Heiser, founded a nonprofit uh, called the Energy Futures Initiative, and we are very pleased to have you as a distinguished associate. And I'm proud of that affiliation. <laughs> right. Um, well, there, okay, there's a lot I want to unpack there. Um, why don't we go backwards first to the nuclear part, and then uh, okay. some other, yeah. Uh, 
So uh, we're here today to uh, celebrate uh, New York Chicago's role dating back 75 years uh, in uh, development of uh, use of nuclear energy and uh, the world doesn't look very safe to someone who doesn't participate in that part of the world very much. Uh, I wondered if you had any thoughts on how things look, particularly I guess with uh, North Korea as being prime, uh, prime target these days. Well, first of all, let me say with regard to the event here today at the University of Chicago, celebrating Fermi's uh, achievement in uh, sustaining a, a, a nuclear reaction. Ch chain reaction, um, I think it's worth, first of all, putting that in the context of the overall Manhattan Project, which as a project is one of the most remarkable uh, periods of science, technology, and organizational excellence being brought together in an incredibly short time. Uh, everything from the Chicago pile yeah. uh, to Los Alamos to literally building new cities yeah. uh, to produce uranium yeah. and plutonium, et cetera, uh, uh, incredible. It's interesting, all of those activities, but one, were, if you like, singularly focused yeah. on producing a bomb. Yeah. The exception is what Fermi did in the sense that it clearly had the dual nature yep. uh, of both being an, a critical step, uh, I guess critical is a pun there, a critical step on the way to the success of the Manhattan Project, but also clearly opened up the possibility of uh, beneficial applications. Uh, and so today, I think we are seeing uh, both sides of that coin uh, on the beneficial applications. Uh, for example, there's no doubt that as we look at climate change, uh, I, think, I think you would agree that the two immutable uh, major contributors to any success in addressing uh, climate uh, risk uh, are improvement on the demand side yeah. and essentially a carbon-free electricity system. Yeah. That's where nuclear power has come in. Uh, it's been the dominant source of uh, carbon-free uh, uh, energy in, uh, in, in the United States. So that's one aspect of its, of its positive. Of course, nuclear medicine, another enormous, uh, enormous uh, product uh, of, of, of nuclear technology. However, we also have the security side uh, and the intersection of those two. So uh, today, um, I'm sorry to say that the, uh, uh, I would say the probability, I didn't say it's high, but nevertheless, the probability of use of a nuclear weapon, I think is higher today than it has been since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm. Uh, and uh, North Korea is, as you said, very much in the news, uh, but uh, there are issues of the US or NATO-Russia uh, interface at a time of Russian isolation. Mm -hmm. uh, for, for obvious reasons, uh, Ukraine to election meddling, yeah. but nevertheless, uh, Russia is, Russia and the United States are the only truly mutual existential yeah. threats uh, in, uh, in, 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 the nuclear, in the nuclear realm. Um, uh, Iran, Iran, uh, uh, Pakistan, uh, India, another, another. Uh, terrorists uh, getting hold of, the, uh, of these materials uh, <clears throat> are, are, all, are all risks. Uh, Is what the technology I'm, so well understood that if a terrorist got hold of uh, some form of the technology, they would be able to construct a weapon? Uh, given, a, given a little time yeah. uh, and, and a very crude weapon, yeah. which would depend upon getting a lot of material. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, for a crude weapon, 
and if you have a lot of material, so I don't mean uh, the, the relatively small number of kilograms that a, a nuclear weapon state yeah. might, might, might need, uh, but, but it, it, is, it is credible. Although, if we're going to talk about terrorists, uh, I really do want to raise the so-called dirty bomb issue, uh, where it's hard for me to understand how luck has carried us through without a dirty right. bomb, uh, because uh, medical radioactive sources are all over the place. Cesium-137 uh, is a source for, every, for blood radiation, every blood bank, yeah. hospitals. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and cesium-137 unfortunately comes in a highly usable form for uh, for such uh, uh, dispersal. Hmm. Uh, the there was an article uh, uh, this uh, summer, uh, the New York Times, uh, when ISIS was uh, uh, removed from Mosul, uh, that there were two very very large cobalt-60 sources there for cancer treatment and. For whatever reason, they either didn't find them, they didn't use them, they didn't yeah. know how, whatever. But uh, but these sources are all, all over the mm -hmm. place, uh, medical, but not only medical. Uh, for example, oil well logging uh, and 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 ma many applications. So the, for the terrorists, it's a much lower damage, but much higher probability yeah. for a, for a dirty bomb. In terms of nation states, uh, to me, the big risk is miscalculation. I don't think any state that has a nuclear weapon really wants to use it. They want, they want yeah. deterrence. Yeah. But you can have miscalculations. It is well known. No, 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 we see it, it is well time. known. Yeah. In many settings, certainly. But, it, but it's well known yeah. in, the, in the open literature yeah. that we have had the situations ripe for miscalculation yeah. and only through kind of semi-miracles uh, did we avoid, yeah. uh, avoid a very, very bad outcome. And, and, and today, by the way, another thing that at NTI we are uh, working on <clears throat> is now the new threats in terms of the command and control structure of nuclear weapons from cybersecurity. It isn't cybersecurity necessarily to shoot off a weapon, yeah. but cybersecurity to interfere with the monitoring devices yeah. that we have to see if we're getting shot at. Yeah. Yeah. And, that doesn't, and that wouldn't have to be the obvious adversary. A third party could decide, oh, here's a way to get yeah. kill two birds with one stone, roughly speaking. Hmm. So anyway, there's, there's a lot of new threats that we are, we are um, we are uh, aware of and, and certainly working hard to, to mitigate. Hmm. Um, I also wanted to talk a little bit uh, about climate change and also about innovation. They're highly related, but maybe we could start with climate change. I uh, just taught a course, as you know, with our friend John Deutsch uh, on the Global Energy Challenge, where one of the themes, of course, was climate change. And I think both of us, I don't want to speak for him, I'll just say for you know, it caused me to do some sober assessment of exactly where we were uh, and what are plausible scenarios about the future. And I, I will confess uh, to leaving it a little bit of a loss or a sense of we were not really on a path to certainly, a, my assessment would be that a two degree Celsius path is, does not look plausible right now. And even if you had a kind of broader goal of significantly reducing the odds of disruptive climate change, that was uh, beginning to look less likely. And I, I, maybe you have a different view, and I wanted to hear what your thoughts on this were. Uh, no, I, uh, I would start by saying the two degree goal, uh, it, does not, it does not violate the laws of physics that <laughs> we, could, uh, we, could, we could achieve this. Yes. Uh, and uh, many of the tools are, are there in principle. Uh, uh, I, I do think that I'll come back to that, but as a side, uh, I do think that to achieve 
a uh, aggressive goal uh, in terms of global warming and then the implications for, uh, for the climate. To do so, I believe we will need more than what we see on the table right now, like you know, better solar, better this. Absolutely. We need that, yeah. but we're also going to need some form of very large-scale carbon management yeah. uh, to, uh, to, to get there. And we are just barely scratching the surface of that. Okay, so I wanted to uh, dive into that. So no, but, by that, but go, oh, go okay. ahead. No, go so, ahead. Yes, but sorry. going back, uh, I think the uh, uh, two degrees uh, clearly is very, very hard. And, and, uh, and it, isn't, it isn't technology uh, and science that leads one to say it's hard to see your way through uh, to getting there. Uh, uh, given, given the global global requirements, isn't this the but, part where you're supposed to say uh, the deep insights of economics are what help us understand it? The why two the, degrees you mean, is so you difficult. Mean, you mean the dismal science? <laughs> yes. Right. Uh, the uh, the uh, but but I I think what's very important. Uh, I have to say that uh, I have issues. I, I, one understands the 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 importance um, and the merits of having a relatively simple goal like two degrees. Yes. But I also understand the drawbacks of having uh, such, a, uh, such a simple met, uh, metric. Uh, it's more complicated, as you, as you well know, number one. And number two, you hope it doesn't discourage us from the perspective that it's important to do as well as we can. Yeah. Uh, and we have to do a lot better than the trajectory that we would be on without making strong, strong efforts. Uh, maybe it gets us to two degrees, maybe it doesn't. But you know, three degrees is a lot better than six degrees, yeah. uh, et cetera. And so I just think we have to, we have to uh, push. Uh, more and more, I, I believe, the, the likely you know, impacts, uh, more extreme storms, things we're seeing, drought, you name it, uh, uh, bark beetle uh, vectors eating the trees and not far from the yeah. place I go in Colorado. Uh, all of these will, I think, increasingly uh, attract not just the public's attention, but the willingness to take action. Uh, now, the longer we wait, um, as you know, the more the inertia carries us to more and more impact, more and more need for adaptation. I believe people will also begin to see the uh, extraordinary expense of adaptation. Uh, and so I think this will come together, whether they come together fast enough for that goal uh, is, is hard to see. Now you had terrific success in international negotiation uh, in a different domain. And I, I just wanted to, because I think when I heard your answer there, I think not entirely, you were largely thinking of the United States, maybe not entirely. Mm -hmm. uh, and. What would significant action in the United States motivated by people's realization that climate change was happening? What do you think that's worth on the international scene? Where you have countries who are, you know, legitimately at extraordinarily low levels of energy consumption and face, you know, the trade-offs they face are in some ways are more acute and painful than the trade-offs we face about delaying consumption or growth today in exchange for preventing. And, and they will also get the full brunt of uh, adaptation and, and requirements. And a lot without, of them without are the resources, very exposed. Without the resources to, yeah. uh, to, to address it effectively. Um, uh, look, I, the way I see it is that, uh, you know, it, well, first of all, the question about what U.S. actions would, would or would not do. I think by far the single most important event that got us to Paris was the November 2014 joint press conference of President Obama and President Xi. 
So it was the fact that, the, well, the two largest economies, agree, yes. one industrialized, one an emerging economy. It was a game changer. Uh, one, an emerging largest economy in the world yeah. uh, uh, was a complete, a complete game changer. Uh, and, and I think uh, uh, the rapidity with which other countries then kind of said, okay, you know, we, we, gotta, we gotta play in this game, we gotta, we gotta do something with, our, with the Paris construct, of their own kinds of goals, et cetera. Uh, uh, it, was, it was pretty, pretty amazing, I think. Uh, so I, I do think that a U.S. Uh, uh, leadership uh, sort of on the ground would be very, 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 very important. Uh, leadership at the political level, geopolitical level, would also be very important. Uh, it would appear that we have to wait a few years uh, for that, uh, for that to, uh, uh, to resume. Um, uh, but I think another driver especially if the United States is taking strong actions, which include pursuing what we call, you talked about negotiations, and I think you were thinking about Iran, but I would also throw in their so-called mission innovation. The idea of committing to the innovation agenda and frankly being a leader uh, in uh, driving and capturing a big part of a multi-trillion dollar global market uh, will also get people's attention. Uh, and so, so I think there's a, there's a I, I think U.S. having the cross-the-board approach like this, both pillars of Paris, yeah. the Paris Agreement and Mission Innovation to double R&D, for example, and do public-private partnerships to, uh, to move forward, I think would have an enormous uh, catalytic effect. Okay, so I wanted to talk more about that uh, innovation. So can we just level set for our listeners and viewers who may not know exactly what mission innovation is? Do you want to give a little background on it? And sure. So uh, uh, the Paris meeting uh, in, in uh, late 2015, December 2015 uh, is well known for and, of course, by definition, ended when the Paris Accord was yeah. reached. But the very first day of the meeting uh, was uh, the day in which national leaders uh, came. And uh, President Obama and 19 other leaders uh, stood on the stage in Paris uh, and uh, pledged to at least <laughs> strive to double the innovation budget, the, the clean energy R&D budget, uh, over a five-year ramp-up period. Uh, and then, uh, and that, uh, and those 20 countries represented about 85% of the of the R&D spending. Uh, by governments uh, worldwide. Uh, Maybe of emissions too. Hmm? Maybe of emissions and, too. And comparable, yeah. comparable, probably a little bit less, but, yeah. but comparable in emissions. Uh, and, um, uh, and in addition, Bill Gates was there to represent uh, 28 uh, uh, international, 10 countries, uh, international investors uh, who stood up and said, hey, if governments are prepared to make this commitment to the innovation agenda, we're prepared to put serious capital uh, on the table and to, whatever this means, uh, take a patient view, uh, understanding that the energy uh, system doesn't evolve in the same way as, yeah. the, uh, as, the, as, uh, as social media, yeah. uh, uh, for example. So, yes. so it was really uh, a, quite an amazing thing. And, 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 and I would say that, for one thing, that, uh, that event put forward the international community's recognition of innovation as being core to addressing the climate challenge. Secondly, in the United States, in the Obama administration, we put forward a budget within the budget caps 
that put us on that trajectory. Now, that did not get put into law. And right now, unfortunately, the, it, it's a fact that the administration's budget proposal to Congress uh, confused where the factor of two should go, numerator or denominator. Uh, and uh, now I don't think Congress is going to follow that suggestion of a major slash of the innovation budget, but it certainly suggests we're not going to get the kind of increase we want. The private sector is still moving forward. Lots of new activity uh, there. Uh, but and can uh, they but move forward with, what force can they move forward without government funding of basic R&D and without clear price signals? No, I, I think, I think it's, it's clear that the government, the government R&D, is, it's a, government is a major player in yeah. this. I, again, I think, I think what's going to happen is that the budget, it's not going to go away, yeah. but I think it's going to be relatively static yeah. uh, in terms of scale. So now the question is, how is it, how is it spent? The, uh, and if I talk about the Department of Energy, I also like to think temporally. Uh, that, uh, uh, I mean, innovation has different faces. Uh, if you're talking about innovation for scaling something within a decade, if you're talking about the intermediate uh, time where you can get a new technology and bring it up and do an IPO and, and, and then begin to scale it, it takes a bit longer. And then, of course, in the long term, like we mentioned earlier, something like large-scale carbon management, in most cases there, there is still some very fundamental science barriers that have to be achieved, and that's, that's a longer time frame. But we need them all. And if I take the Department of Energy, for example, I'll give you an example of each of those epochs. Uh, in the first epoch, I would put the loan program. Very successful uh, by many, many yep. measures. Um, uh, it really kick-started completely the utility-scale solar uh, business, now, for uh, example. So let me say, very successful by measures that economists would appreciate, uh, but uh, in terms of internal rate of return and things like that. But in well, well it, no, no, and, and but, I, but there I, were I, isolated examples that caught the yeah, political sure. spear's eye. And so how? Sure. But that's like a. Sure. So it seems like a fundamental problem. So, so why can't the public use the same IRR that I would like them to use? Well, and and uh, in addition to IRR, I'll give you another very simple. Uh, a metric that economists can understand. Uh, the, Thank you for talking the, the, down uh, in ways that I can the, uh, the, the, the losses in the portfolio to the taxpayer are about $850 million, the majority of which was one loss, the, the famous Solyndra case. Yeah. Uh, the interest paid to the Treasury so far is $2 billion. No, no, I understand. That's exactly so, my point. The no, no, IRR yeah. returns look great. Yeah, so, yeah, so what I'm saying, there's yeah. very simple yeah. uh, metrics there. And it's got to be a portfolio, a portfolio valuation. So obviously some failed. In fact, I think as you well know, the Congress put aside $10 billion as a loss fund, yeah. and it's only $850 million. I'm, war I'm worried that we were being too conservative, yeah. and partly it was the political pushback on Solyndra made people be much more, much more uh, restrained. That program has got $40 billion of remaining authority. Hmm. What I would like to see, instead of a knee-jerk reaction to get rid of it, yeah. maybe because it was you know, created in the, in the Obama, it wasn't actually created, it was actually created in the Bush administration, it's exercised funded, yeah. in the Obama yeah. administration. Uh, the, um, that, for example, here's an idea. The president wants to do energy infrastructure. The president also said, I think I'm quoting him in the campaign, I love debt. 
Yes. Here's the perfect program. Uh, <laughs> We're making policy here's some, here's in the some, epic here's podcast. Here's yes. some debt financing. That requires no for, congressional approval. For energy infrastructure. Yes. No, no, that's right. Uh, and, uh, and $40 billion of debt financing might leverage $100 billion yeah. of energy infrastructure. That's a pretty good down payment on the, on the overall infrastructure mm. goals of the president. So, so, so that's, that was the near-term epic. I won't go into so much detail, yeah. but for the midterm, I would put a program like RPE. Uh, again, by all the intermediate metrics, extremely successful. Uh, lots of startup companies, lots of private capital attracted as follow-on investments. Uh, well, can uh, I just uh, express uh, a frustration about RPE? Mm -hmm. Everyone loves RPE. There's kind of bipartisan support about RPE. Uh, but what I don't understand is uh, the amount of money is ridiculously small, like yeah. particularly relative to the size of the problem. So. I want uh, people's love to show up uh, in, in the bottom line. And is there a path correct. to that? The, uh, uh, yeah, well, look, first of all. The tracker is all, very good. No, no, first of all, so the budget now is around 300 million, yeah. roughly. Uh, the original idea, as put forward by the National Academy in 2005, was it should be a billion dollar program. That tripling is exactly the number that's been talked about for a long time by the, Atom by the uh, American Energy Innovation Council, mm. CEOs mm -hmm. of, of, big, of big companies. Uh, RPE has certainly done everything to earn that kind of a, of a path. Look, all I can say is that, uh, you know, actually, Secretary Perry at DOE in early March put out a, a, a quite correct tweet I, I assume after being briefed on the program in saying this is exactly what we need more of. Mm -hmm. That was maybe a week before the OMB put out their first budget proposal to zero the program yeah. that he was asking for more. Mm -hmm. uh, so a little bit of a disconnect, obviously. Uh, uh, but what did Congress do? Congress gave RPE a 5% increase mm -hmm. uh, in response to yeah. that administration budget for zero. Yeah. So that's encouraging that, as you said, there is a, a fundamental change, uh, yes. support, yeah. but finding the extra money is always hard. Yeah. Um, but that's what priorities should be about, and I think RPE deserves yeah. that kind of high priority. So that's, that's the kind of program that's very important for what I would call the possibility of some scaling of technologies, maybe in the 2025, 2035 yeah. uh, timeframe. Then you have the long term, where, as I okay, say, now you're talk about carbon uh, management. I've been well, things like large scale yeah. carbon management. Yeah. Well, okay. so first of all, so let's level yeah. set. What yeah. do you mean by that? And uh, uh, so, so large scale carbon management can be e anything from the relatively straightforward uh, large scale sequestration of carbon dioxide underground, yeah. from uh, straight out of coal capturing plants it from coal plants, plants or maybe even more uh, industrial plants. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, but you know. The scale isn't fully appreciated. So if you take a 1,000 uh, megawatts of coal plant and you capture 90% of the CO2 for 50 years, let's say, a life, yeah. let's say life of the plant, uh, and you put that CO2 underground and it forms a reservoir, mm -hmm. that reservoir would be equivalent to 2 billion barrels from 1,000 mm -hmm. megawatt uh, that's the size of a big yeah. oil reservoir. So it gives you the idea. Now, if you need a thousand of those, yeah. uh, this is a this is a big deal with lots of science problems and lots of uh, policy problems, yeah. regulatory problems, et cetera, to manage. 
We got to get. It has to work around the world. We got to just all around, around the yeah, world. Yeah. So we got institutional. We got to get on with that. We got to get on with that. We've been wasting a lot of yeah. time, in my view. Uh, I mean, we we were doing things, but I think this needs to be a big push. Yeah. But then there are uh, the science uh, of can we do very large scale utilization of CO two? Uh, right. I mean, uh, with a reasonable economics. Yeah. Uh, can we do sunlight to fuels? Uh, sunlight plus CO two plus water. Yeah. That's that's a big holy grail. Yeah. Uh, for example, can we can we manage the terrestrial system to fix a lot more carbon? Yeah. Biological yeah. approaches. So there's lots and lots to do here. We need to get on with that portfolio. I want to make it clear when I said temporal, I meant temporal for impact. We need to do all of them now uh, in, so order to, in order to meet those. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now I know we're and almost think, out of your yeah. time. Uh, I have one final question. Uh, I think people feel like they learned many things from the 2016 presidential election. Uh, you had a really important and insightful spot. What do you think we learned about the American public's interests and desires about energy policy? I'm not sure um, there was an awful lot to learn, to be honest, um, uh, from the election itself. I think the election turned on very, very different factors. Um, in terms of long-standing social uh, challenges and inequalities yeah. uh, that, that need to be addressed. Uh, I'm, I'm, always, I'm encouraged by things like polls uh, on something like climate showing you know, much more, uh, much increased uh, uh, appreciation uh, that we need to do something. Uh, those polls, the polls that then follow up in saying, uh, and, how, and what are you willing to do yeah. now to solve the problem aren't as encouraging. Yeah. Uh, but we did a poll itself, at Epic uh, that it has an interesting result, uh, yeah. which is uh, you ask, you know, would you pay a dollar uh, on your utility bill uh, to do something about CO2 or, uh, mm -hmm. or, or uh, climate change? And the fraction of households who are unwilling to spend a dollar is pretty high. I, off the top of my head, I think it's like 60%. However, uh, and then we asked, would you pay $10, would you pay $20, $30? Uh, if you take the weighted average, so that is how much the average American is willing to pay. Ten, let me guess. No, no. it's like $40 <laughs> or $50 because oh, wow. there's okay. a tail out there of people yeah. who are really willing to devote yeah. a lot of resources nice. to it. And so how you, I, that to me feels like the political challenge. Like how do you take that those guys are willing to pay so much and spread it over the whole system so that the people who don't want to pay very much get compensated. Well, as those who don't want to pay, and, the, and, the, and there are those who really can't pay. Yes. And that's where, um, just to maybe to finish, I, I would say, I think that something like, for example, the so-called conservatives' proposal uh, are the kinds of things we have to, we have to yeah. do. Because it's kind of got somebody, something for everybody, yeah. maybe. Uh, so that, you know, as you know, that's the idea of, and, and they recommend a, uh, Roughly forty or forty plus dollar uh, per ton, uh, something that might be close to what somebody termed the social cost of carbon. Indeed, uh, uh, is it and, an accident uh, or and, were they, uh, uh, learning? And uh, <laughs> but then return the money uniformly to the people. Yeah. Uh, the indications are that's progressive. Yeah. Uh, seventy percent of the the seventy percent lowest in the income profile uh, would gain uh, net, and then in addition, uh, relieve the energy sector of some amount of regulation and the, uh, and the public of some amount of, uh, of tax incentive. Yeah. And that's a package that to me could work. I, I, maybe it's not exactly the right package, but that's where we it have to start thinking. has a lot of appeal. That's where we have to start thinking, I think, yeah. Ernie Lonise, thank okay. you so much. You're always welcome here. Thank you, Mike. Yeah.
Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on Epic's website at epic.uchicago.edu. Until next time, I'm Jeff McMahon.